that, Father, we will be a reflection, not only of your glory, but that, Father, you will begin to work, continue that work within us, of not only declaring us righteous, but, Father, making us righteous before you. Father, we pray this morning that by your Spirit you would give us a, a spirit of wisdom and, under, and understanding. Father, you would help us to understand your word and see its application to our lives today. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 25. lots of reasons this week has been an incredibly long week for me. I don't know if it's been that way for you, but um, obviously one of the things that contributed to its length, or at least its seemingly uh, extra long uh, length, was our national election. And uh, although there was uh, you know, arguably a landslide in terms of the Electoral College, uh, in terms of the popular vote, uh, it was actually fairly close. And what that means is this week there are some people who are thrilled with the outcome, uh, about half of us as a nation, and there's another half that are less than thrilled with the outcome uh, of this past week's election. To be sure, we should rejoice that a serious blow was dealt to racism in this country. It is, frankly, an amazing thing to think that uh, just 40 years ago, there were still in the South uh, laws that would have forbid the man that we just elected as President of the United States of America to go in the same restaurant as us, to use the same drinking fountain as us, to sit in a different part of a bus from us. And so we rejoice that uh, hopefully um, much of the tension and struggle that this country has had because of racism has been put behind us. But that rejoicing nevertheless comes with a mixed bag because the cost of such a blow to racism comes also at the expense of potentially what could be millions upon millions of unborn babies. Though we seem to have looked past color in this election, unfortunately we also looked past the rights of the unborn, electing the most pro-abortion candidate ever. As Christians, many of us are going to be concerned about who is elected into office, thinking not so much about our, pockets, our pocketbooks, but about the, the issues, about the morality, the sense of justice that the person brings to their position. And if we had our choice, we would certainly have a godly person holding political office. But what happens, not just with this past week's election, but in all elections, what happens when an ungodly person is elected into office? What then becomes your responsibilities toward a government that stands against the kinds of values that you hold by virtue of the fact of your faith in Christ? How are you to think of an ungodly government? How are you to speak of an ungodly government? How are you to pray and how are you to live under such a government? Well, this week can only be evidence of God's providence in that the passage we come to this morning as we go through Acts deals very specifically with Paul uh, and his relationship to Rome as a Roman citizen. And many of the issues that potentially we could face in this country uh, are coming out of our text this morning. And so by looking closely at Paul's actions, I think we'll be given some help in understanding how we should go about living a godly life under human government, whether it's a godly government or whether it's an ungodly government. What is our response to be? So let's look to our text this morning, Acts chapter 25, the first 12 verses 
And let's see Paul's monophorus in this. Luke says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem, and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as for you yourselves know very well. If I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. May God bless the reading of his word. Our passage begins with Paul in prison. Now we know from last week and from, this previous, from the context here, the previous passage, we know that Paul had a certain amount of freedom that had been given to him uh, in this kind of uh, protective custody, as it were. You can't really go out and be free, uh, but we're really not going to let you go either. Nevertheless, uh, Christians could come and could go and he could verse them, he could write letters. Um, what we've talked about before, but just might be a helpful reminder is, you know, frankly, our prisoners have it fairly good today. Uh, in Roman times, if you were taken prisoner, it was up to your family and friends to keep you alive because they, were, they weren't going to give you food. They weren't going to give you new clothes. They were going to take care of you. You were there to be in prison and that was it. And so if you didn't have any family and friends, you wouldn't last very long in a Roman prison. Okay? Uh, but Paul obviously had uh, an entire uh, world full of brothers and sisters in Christ and they came to his aid. Nevertheless, he's been in legal limbo for something like two years you know, Felix keeps waiting for him to bribe him, and he keeps bringing Paul out and saying, bring him to come talk to me. And what does Paul keep doing? He just keeps presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. I can imagine Felix is wanting to, to pull his hair out. Well, that's gone on for two years, and now Luke says there is a change of leadership. History shows that Felix had done such a terrible job, not just with Paul, but with the administration of affairs in Judea and Palestine in general, that he was recalled to Rome. And in fact, the only thing that saved him from being executed was the fact that he had a brother uh, in the Roman Senate. Now Governor Portius Festus is sent as governor of this province, and he arrives in Caesarea and is immediately confronted with this issue with Paul. And it's only three days before he makes his way to Jerusalem. You know that if Jerusalem is such a high priority on a man's list, there's problems there. There's difficulties. There's friction between the Jews and the Romans at this point. And when Festus arrives, Luke tells us the high priest, the chief elders, more or less the entire Sanhedrin court comes to him for an audience and they say, we need to talk about this guy, Paul. Felix has had him for two years and has done nothing with him. We want you 
to let him come to Jerusalem so that we could try him. He has committed crimes against our temple and our law, and you have given us the authority to judge in those matters, so bring him down here. And of course Luke tells us that at the end of the day, all this was, was an attempt to get him uh, on the road out in the open where they could try another attempt at assassinating him. Well, this is, uh, this is where we're at. And I think that from this passage, I think we can see three ways in which we should live God-honoring lives as citizens of an earthly nation. You see, some groups say that you should ignore the government outright. You should have nothing to do with it. You should run away from it altogether. But that's not the example that Paul gives us, both here by his life and elsewhere in his teachings. Instead, he shows what we should be doing to live a life for God under human government, even if it's a sinful government like Rome. Well, that's what we want to see this morning. What we see are really three exhortations that I want to present to you this morning. First of all, as Christians, we are to honor God. We are to honor God by showing respect for human government. We are to honor God by showing respect for human government. One of the most amazing things from Paul's life is how patient he is. Can you imagine being in prison for two years and nothing happening? No charges being... They've already presented the charges that couldn't prove their case, but you get thrown back in prison anyway. And, and, and you're just sitting and you're waiting. You've gotten some liberty, but you're still in the stocks. You're still in the chains. And they, a new guy comes in and they, and they bring you out again. What, what would you be like? Indignant? Flaming? Mad? Would you have gone Pompeii on the guy, as it were? Although Pompeii hadn't happened yet. But you get my point. Would you have just chewed the guy out and said, Come on, I'm sitting here and get me out of this place. Well, I probably would have. But Paul doesn't do anything like that. In fact, he shows an, an extraordinary amount of respect towards Festus and the other officials. And did you think about verse 11 when we read it? Paul says, if I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Paul says, look, if I have in fact broken a Roman law, then I will willingly accept that punishment. And I say, Paul, you know, you, you know you, you've done nothing. You, you're only living for God. Well, why would you say that? Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you mount your defense as it were? Why wouldn't you employ all the, why wouldn't you try and get out of this thing? Paul can say that because he actually believes what he wrote just three years before this to the Roman Christians. In chapter 13 of his letter, listen to what Paul says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason... You also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now some of us have a hard time swallowing that pill, and we live in the United States of America. Think about where Paul lived. Rome. Rome. 
When Paul says they bear the sword, he does, you know what he means is capital punishment. Not only do I think it is a side issue, this is an implicit affirmation that capital punishment is an appropriate uh, standard of punishment for any body, uh, governing body, but what he is saying is their treatment of people was not peachy keen. It wasn't as good as we have it today. He did not have all the freedoms and privileges that we enjoy, and yet Paul still says, be subject to the governing authorities. He says, God has established human government to restrain sin. And even if they do it in an impure or even sinful way, it's God's instrument to fulfill his purposes. So as far as Paul was concerned, the Caesar at the time, Nero, he was in power because God had put him in power. Festus was in power because God had put him in power. Felix, before him, had been in power because God had put him in power. And except in those instances where the magistrate is asking us to do what God forbids us to do, or forbids us from doing what God requires us to do, the magistrate is to be obeyed and the law is to be adhered to. That's what Paul's teaching. And here we see him living that very thing out. Paul says, as Christians, we are to show honor to human government. That is, we are to, to those who govern over us, even if they are not Christians, we are to show them respect and submit to their authority. He even goes so far as to say, pay your taxes and support the government. In every way, he says, be good citizens to the glory of God, because ultimately, that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. You are honoring God by honoring human government. You see, as Christians, we can get into the mindset that if the government does not share our values, and the government doesn't line up according to even a biblical standard, that then we, we don't honor them. We don't respect them. We speak ill of them all the time and in crude and crash ways. But Paul says, no, no, that's not an appropriate response for the Christian. That's not an appropriate response for the Christian. Now, it doesn't mean, again, that there's no room for refusing to obey. Even in seeking to be subject to human government, as God's ordained leaders, there will be times when we will have to resist. You remember Peter and James, right? Back in chapter 5 of Acts, all the way back in chapter 5. Do you remember that? Forty-some sermons ago. You remember they've been preaching Christ, and people come and say, we told you, stop preaching Christ. And do you remember what their response is? We must obey God rather than men. Now, does this contradict what Paul is saying? No, not at all. As Christians, we are to follow and submit to human government until it reaches a point where the law forbids us from doing what God asks us to do or causes us to do something God forbids us to do. So let me give you an example. Well, you know, someone has said, I am neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet and I work for a nonprofit organization. Okay, that's me as well, okay? So, you know, I am not making forecasts. You know, I'm not a guy who says God speaks to me in dreams and, you know, next year, you know, uh, you know the communists are coming down from Gog and Magog and the whole thing's going to... No, no, I'm, I'm, not in, I'm not into that kind of stuff, okay? I don't think God does that stuff anymore, all right, to be quite frank. But, nevertheless, let me make a prediction because I see it happening and I think it's, it's frankly a no-brainer kind of prediction. Currently in Canada and in England, to speak out against homosexuality is a hate crime. It's hate speech, Okay? There will come a day, and I think it will be much quicker than we would like to think about, perhaps in the next couple of years, where to speak out against homosexuality as a legitimate lifestyle will become a hate, it'll be labeled hate speech. It'll become a hate crime. And so there's, there, there, there's a problem there. Because as a pastor, as, as, we, as I begin to preach through someplace like Leviticus, or someplace like Romans, or someplace like 1 Corinthians, or someplace like 1 Timothy, I may come across a passage that reads like this. 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. God's word says homosexuality is not a choice, it's a sin. But it's also a forgivable sin. Just like some of the Corinthians had practiced homosexuality and God had cleansed them from that. He had taken those desires away from them. He had purged them by the power of his spirit. That's what God's word says, but human government are going to say, you can't preach that, that's hate speech. That's hate speech. And so the question becomes, what do you do then? Do you avoid those passages? Do you come to those passages and not preach what the word of God says? Do we be good citizens and obey the laws? In this case, we say no. Why? Because man's laws here are going against God's laws and what God is saying. And so in that kind of direct, very confrontational instance, we preach and we know full well, though, like Paul, if I have done something to violate the laws of this land, then I will gladly take the punishment for it. So if it becomes illegal, and if I decide, I'm preaching in 1 Corinthians, and I preach that, and there's someone here, and they call somebody and say, hey, you know, this guy just said that, and we happen to spend two or three weeks on this issue, on that topic, and they come again and they say, you can't do that, that's hate speech. That's a $500 fine. Guess what I have to do? Better charge it, because I don't have the cash. And if they say, but if you do it again, it's another $500, then it's going to be $500, and it's going to be $500, and it's going to be $500. And if they say, you can't do that, you're going to get six months in jail, then guess what? Some of you better start sending my paychecks to my wife because I want to be in the clink for six months. Because at the end of the day, there reaches a point where you have to say, I should be a good citizen insofar as it stops me from being a good Christian. And the moment I can't be a good Christian, then I have to stop honoring the government. But understand, understand very clearly, that's the exception. That's not the rule. That's the, that's the kind of worst case scenario thing that happens very, very infrequently in this country. For the most part, we are called to submit to the leadership God has given us. We are to honor the God-ordained government in our lives, and in doing so, we honor God himself. Even if it's ungodly leadership, even if it's woefully sinful leadership, it's still leadership that God has put into our lives, and we honor it and we submit to it just as we give honor to God. The second thing that we see here is that not just in submitting to human government, we also must serve God faithfully under human government. We must serve God faithfully under human government. Luke says, after Festus stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and be tried on these charges before me? Now you see, Festus is quite frankly in a tight spot. He cannot repeat the bad decision of Felix, simply leaving him in prison. Because this has, this has not added to um, the... The, the lovingness between the Romans and the Jews. I mean, at this point, you have to understand, we've talked about it a little bit before when Paul was first arrested. There are actually uh, Jewish militias engaging in terrorist attacks against the Romans at this point. 
They are calling for full-out revolution. And in just three to four years from when this is taking place, there will be all-out war resulting in the absolute destruction of the temple of the Jews in AD 70. So things are, are it's kind of it's prickly right now. And Festus knows the one thing he cannot do is simply throw Paul uh, back into prison and let him rot for a few more years. The Jews simply will not tolerate it. If he simply lets him go, then that's not going to go out well either. The Jews could explode into a full-blown revolt. But, but he may also know. He should also know. He's done nothing wrong. Time after time again, if people have presented the same facts, the same case, and to their, to their credit, they've said, you've got nothing here that shows me this man has done anything wrong. He's not guilty of anything. So what is he to do? Well, he asked Paul if he'd be willing to be tried under the jurisdiction of Jerusalem. Now, you see what he's doing here, right? Like he's playing politics. Festus surely knows that Paul is a Roman citizen and he is entitled to trial under a Roman tribunal, but he is desperate to get this issue out of his life. You know it would have been significant because, again, this happens almost immediately when he takes power. And he's going to come down here and deal with this issue and he wants to just be done with it. And frankly, the whole thing is an injustice. Festus should be concerned for Rome's citizens, but instead he is only concerned for his own political career. But Paul is concerned for justice. Because ultimately, in this instance, a concern for justice means furtherance of the gospel. Well, you remember, Paul's, Paul's whole life is about proclaiming the gospel. You cannot read about Paul without seeing gods at best and so he is constantly seen telling that message seeing people saved and desiring to make God glorified that's the goal of his life and Paul knows that if this injustice continues his life and so the work of the gospel will be cut short it will end prematurely and so he sees what's going on and he says this is not going to do this simply will not do and so he says in verse 10, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done nothing wrong as you yourselves very well know. And at the end of verse 11 he says, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. It was the citizen's right to have, it, it, it's, not, it's not an appeal as it were, like you're found guilty then you appeal. Now if you're found guilty, you're guilty. But he's not been found guilty. And it was always every Roman citizen's right to appeal directly to Caesar himself and be tried by him. And that's exactly what Paul does here. Paul doesn't just blindly or passively accept the actions of the civil magistrates. He doesn't just give in, but rather protests the injustice that he sees vigorously and ultimately goes over the head of Festus in order to save himself. In the same way also as God's people, we can only give qualified respect to civil authority. Again, do we submit to the governing authorities? Absolutely. But what do we do when we see injustice being carried out? What do, we, what do we see when it's being carried out under government supervision? Do we remain silent? Do we do nothing? 
Absolutely not. Because even under human government, we are called to serve God faithfully. We must protest and resist injustice. We should be the ones who call for an end to things like ethnic cleansing in other countries. We should be the ones who work for and call for uh, the ending of the mistreatment of poor people. We should be the ones on the front line of providing help for families and teens so that they can carry the infants to full term and not simply discard unborn babies like worthless biological waste. We must live faithfully before God regardless of the actions of any human government. There's a state penitentiary in Angola, Louisiana. And this penitentiary used to be so hard-edged. It used to be so bad in terms of living conditions and the kind of criminals that were there that it had the highest homicide rate inside of the prison. So it's not that people are killers and they're being incarcerated there, and that's what makes it No, within the prison, people were being killed at the highest rates of any other prison in the United States. I mean, it was, it was a bad place to be. Most of the people that went in there were, were lifers. And they basically said, we've got nothing to lose. And they were hard-nosed and hard-boiled, and they took it out on one another. And quite frankly, nobody really cared. After all, the view was the inmates there are the dregs of society. They've committed horrible crimes. Who cares what happens to them once they're in the prison system? The city, the state, the federal government, no concern about changing things or making conditions better. But then a new warden came. And he knew by reputation what was going on. And he saw for himself firsthand what was going on. But more importantly, he saw those inmates for what they really were. People. They were people. Were they terrible sinners? Yes. Were they justly convicted? Most likely, yes. But did they deserve to live like this? No. No. And so he wanted to change the environment in which was there, and he, did, quite frankly, didn't even know where to begin. And so he said, well, I'm going to begin with the best place, the best thing I can possibly think of. I want to invite people to come in and have Bible studies with the prisoners. Now, first of all, can you imagine the first people that went in? They got locked in a room with people that would set people on fire and, you know, murder, kill, rape, pillage, plunder, you know, I mean, I don't know, I haven't had the guts to do that or not. But people went in and they did, and guess what? God began to move in that place. And people began to get saved. And then, from these people that were saved and being discipled by these people coming in, some said, we feel God calling us to ministry. Now, what are you going to do with that? They got life sins. I mean, you're going to try to, you're going to try to appeal that decision? No, it's life without parole. Well, here's what they did. You may not know this, but one of the seminaries that you support every week when you put money in that plate, New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, they started an extension center within Angola Prison. And every week, once a week, someone, one of the professors would come in and they would sit in a locked room with these men who had been convicted of crimes barely imaginable and teach them theology and church history and pastoral counseling and church leadership and evangelism. And they began to train these men for ministry. Not because they were going to go out and get out into society, but because they were staying in. There's over 20 functioning churches, bodies of Christ within that prison now. They have pastors, people who have been convicted, who did heinous crimes and have been saved and forgiven. And God has reoriented their lives toward him. And now they are caring for other prisoners. And you stop back and you say, what started all that? What started all that? It was one person who said, I respect civil government, but I abhor the injustice that I see them putting their stamp of approval on. 
I need to work to do something to see it changed. Now, three prisons have seminary extension centers, and God continues to save hardened criminals and allow them to be trained to minister to one another. One of them even, miraculously, almost never happens, got transferred from one penitentiary to another. And you know why it said that, what the reason was on his list? Missionary work. He was actually commissioned by a local church to be a missionary to the other prison and help start the extension center there. See, all of this came to pass because one person said, I don't care the government has dropped the ball. I must honor God. I must continue to live faithfully. And we must do the same. Even if government does not hold the same moral compass, the same values as we do, we belong to God. And we must continue to serve Him faithfully under whatever governmental system that we find ourselves. The third thing that we need to do. The third thing that we need to do, we need to trust God to work through human government. We need to trust God to work through human government. Remember that Luke intends the book of Acts to be read as one book. And he's continuing to show the unfolding of God's plan to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to be careful we don't get tunnel vision and just see the trees without, and, and lose the forest. And so in case we have forgotten, there's two things that we need to be reminded of that Luke has already told us. First of all, it's Paul's calling as an apostle. Do you remember what God said? Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Now, if you read Paul's letters, I get the impression that, quite frankly, he would have been happy just to minister to his own people. He has such a love and a compassion and a drive to see them acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. But God said, I've got other things that I want you to do. You're not just going to minister to the Jews. You're also going to minister to the Gentiles, all the nations of the world. You're going to have a part in being a gospel influence in, but you're also going to rise above common society, and you're going to be a witness to kings. And what did Paul do? He says, I will gladly embrace that call. And we see that being fulfilled over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts. But secondly, we also see just more immediately God has told him he's going to make it to Rome. You remember back in chapter 23, over two years ago now in Paul's life, Paul is sitting in a, in a prison. He's been beaten near to death. He's wondering what the future would hold. And the risen Christ comes to him and says, Take courage, for as you have testified of the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. And now you notice that since then, over two years now, God's been silent. In the past, Paul, God has spoken directly to Paul. He has said, Go here, do this, don't do the other. And now, nothing. There's none of that. So what is Paul going to do? Well, what does the rest of us do? I mean, I, I, I would wager to think no one in here has had God come in and say, I'm going to keep you alive until you hit 60 because I'm going to send you to the mission field. Does that ever happen to anybody? Not to me. And that's okay. You know why? Because God has given us the fullness of his word. And so we do the very same thing that Paul does, and that is we continue to rely on the promises that he has already given us. And so what has he told Paul? You're not just going to go to the Jews, you're going to go to the Gentiles, and you're going to go and be a witness before me to kings. And I'm going to keep you alive long enough to the very least, you're going to take the gospel to Rome itself. Paul knows all of this. He knows this is what God has promised he is going to do. But quite frankly, he does not quite sure how that's going to happen. So what does he do? What does he do? Do you begin to fast? Do you begin to prayer? Do you, do you try and say, well, God, I don't still see you. You've got to make this happen. You've got to get me out of here. No. God has promised that it will come to pass. So what does he do? He appeals to a fallible, sinful, human, governmental leader to get him where God wants him to be. 
see that? He says, I appeal to Caesar. He didn't say, I appeal to God, God answer it. He knows God's going to answer the question. He knows he's going to answer his promises to him. He knows it's going to happen. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. And he says, maybe God's going to use Caesar. What higher king is there in all the land? What better place to see the gospel? The very center of Western civilization at that time. He says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourselves very well know. If I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Here I am. Slay me. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. He has trusted God to keep his promise, but to keep his promise using a sinful, unbelieving ruler. And that's exactly what God does. Festus confers with his counsel and says, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. I could not help but think in that old, weathered, bearded face with a big grin that broke out over Paul's face. Because you think about what has just happened. Festus has become the unwitting means by which God is going to bring about his purposes. He's not only been saved from this Jewish plot, but here's a guy who thinks that the Lord Jesus Christ being raised from the dead is a nutter story, and yet he's the person who has advanced the gospel onto Rome just as God has promised. And frankly, that should not be all that surprising to us because God does this kind of thing all the time. Do you remember Isaiah 45? There's a pagan king named Cyrus, and God says, he is going to be my servant. Did this pagan king worship the Lord? No, absolutely not. In fact, God makes this statement before Cyrus is even born. And he says, there is going to be a pagan king named Cyrus. So he names a man before he's even born. He, he prophesies his birth, declares his name, and says, he will be my anointed he is going to be my instrument to bring about my purposes, even though he is not yet born. And when he is born, he will never know me. He's not going to turn to me in faith. Nevertheless, I will use him. You think about Jesus. He's standing before Pilate. He had under the complete confidence and the sovereignty of God, even before an ungodly leader. Pilate is asking Jesus questions about who he is and what's going on. And Jesus doesn't answer anything. And Pilate gets a little irate. He says, don't you know who I am? Don't you know I have the power of your life and your death in my hand? And Jesus kind of calmly turns and looks at him and says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus says, Yeah, I know who you are, but you don't know who I am. And you really don't know who you are. Because any authority that you have over me has been given to you by my Heavenly Father above. And so ultimately, no, my life is not in your hands it's in his, and it's in mine. So this week, when the people of this country elected a man into office that repeatedly voted to deny life-saving care to babies born from botched abortion procedures, you have to think, what in the world have we done? At least I thought that. What have we done? And you may be tempted to think, God, what in the world good can possibly come of this? And quite frankly, we don't know, but God knows. God knows. In fact, from before the foundation of the world, God ordained every congressman, every senator, every mayor, every drain inspector that would ever be elected in this country. And he ordained all those things in such a way that he is going to advance his good and glorious purposes, not only in this country, but in the world. And, through, and so through godly and wicked men alike, the Lord has brought about his purposes. And there's no need to fear. 
There's no need to fear. There's no need to, there's no need to, to wonder what, what's going to happen. We, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know God's not defeated because of one election. He's not defeated over several elections. He's not defeated because someone that we would not agree with in the totality of his politics is in office. Who cares? There's been far worse in the world than God has ever been defeated. He has made promises that he will keep, and sometimes he will use ungodly men and women to do it. Therefore, we continue to trust in God to do what he has promised to do. Only time will tell, frankly, what kind of government we will have for the next four years. But regardless of whether or not it's good or bad, godly or ungodly, we want to honor God by showing respect for the human government that he has established. We want to continue to faithfully serve God under that government and all the while trust that God is going to work not just in spite of it, but through it. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the things of this world and to lose our focus. Father, to forget that we are called to be your people, citizens in a heavenly kingdom. Father, not just now, but for all eternity, Lord, when your Son returns and this world is completely wiped away and a new heavens and a new earth will be our dwelling place. Father, in the grand scheme of things, our lives in this country is just a small blip on the history of the world and on your purposes and plans. Father, help us to never get tunnel vision and lose sight of those realities. Father, every day, even this, this morning, Father, help us to have a renewed sense of eternity. The fact that one day we will stand before your throne. That, Father, all of humanity will stand before your throne. And it will either be, depart from me, you wicked. Or well done, good and pleasing servant. Father, we long to hear, well done. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to understand how to live in a way that brings glory and honor to your name under human government. Father, help us follow Paul's example. Father, help us to follow the example of so many others throughout the scriptures, Father. We think of Joseph and Daniel and Nehemiah. Father, help us to stand in this great and godly line of people who, though loyal to the authority that was placed above them, Father, had a, a more deep and lasting and joyous authority to you, the one true living God. Father, we ask all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the message this morning, I ask that you would stand and that you would sing with me, Teach me, O Lord, I pray. <clears throat>